All right, everybody. You want to turn with me in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4. Good to see you. Light on. There we go. Okay, let's uh, let's pray one more time. Ask the Lord to just bless our time together. Let's pray. Father, uh, we come before you now, and we're so delighted, Lord, to be able to sing the praises of our great God and King. Wondrous things of you are said, Lord, because you are wondrous, and as the psalmist declares, you alone do wondrous things. And so, Father, we ask that you would uh, continue to do the wonder and the miracle of transformation and conformity to the image of Christ, Lord, in our lives. Help us, Lord, as we study uh, this grand subject of, of theology, that you would uh, just give us your heart for these things, Lord. Let it not be simply a accumulation of data or head knowledge, Lord, but let it be the inward cry of our heart to know you. So we pray that you'd help us, help our weak frame, help us, Lord. We, we confess that our minds uh, are in desperate need to be transformed and renewed uh, in our inner man, Lord, so that we can glorify you in all things. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. So, once again, uh, we are uh, talking about the subject of practical uh, theology. Practical theology. And you remember from last week uh, what it is that other people call practical theology. Do you remember? What was the other f- name for practical theology? Pastoral. Pastoral, that's right. It's pastoral. And really, uh, Galatians chapter 4 helps us to see this pastoral uh, component. Uh, look with me to the uh, at verse, well, I suppose we can begin in verse uh, 19 is fine. Uh, beginning in verse 19 of Galatians 4, this is kind of the, this is sort of the, some of the, like a foundational verse for this. But he says, my children with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you. But I wish that I could be present with you now and to change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. Now, if you know anything about the background of the book of Galatians, you understand the controversy that's going on there. Uh, the Galatians are uh, suffering prey to the Judaizers who are trying to confuse them and trying to stir or really to throw their faith into confusion because they're saying that, you know, in order to be fully fully in covenant membership with God, you have to also uh, take on uh, uh some of the, the dietary or the or the uh, the um, uh, some of the principles of the levitical code you have to be circumcised you have to do these various things in order to actually be in covenant with god and and to be fully justified before god you also have to fulfill these aspects of the law now of course paul is saying no but what's what the problem is is that the church as a whole has actually begun to compromise and they've begun to open themselves up to false teaching. And so what Paul has in mind here is definitely dealing with um, the church getting uh, on track with the gospel. And so Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 9, of course he says, you know, I'm so, I'm, I marvel that you are so quickly deserting the gospel for another gospel, right? Not that there is another gospel, but um, there you see them getting off track as a whole. But just the phrase... Uh, that he says here uh, in verse 19, he says, I am in labor until Christ is formed in you. If you would, that is what practical theology and pastoral theology is all about. It is, uh, it, it is the effort to try to uh, conform us into Christ's image. 
Um, this is a very, uh, maybe a corporate uh, text, maybe a parallel text. Go to Ephesians, which we're going to be really uh, looking at Ephesians, but you see this simple truth amplified in Ephesians 4. And many of you know this is one of my favorite passages, but just the the intricacy of what and the exhaustive nature of what Paul says here. Uh, beginning in verse 11, you know this passage. He gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors, some teachers for the equipping of the saints of the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. And then it says, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and to the knowledge of the Son of God. And now listen to this now. To a mature man. And what is this mature man talking about? To the measure of the stature which is the which belongs to the fullness of Christ. I mean, what an incredible, uh, what an incredible description of Christian maturity uh, that it is dealing with the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. I mean, that is saying that what Paul wants for the believer for the and and the church is that they would grow in such a way that they grow into the stature of Christ's own maturity, Christ's own spiritual fullness. Just remarkable. I mean, this is really what pastoral theology is really all about, is growing into Christ-likeness. And this is the burden. And and this is, you know, if you would, we're looking at, I guess what we can call today, both the nature, okay, and the scope of practical theology, the nature and the scope. So the nature of it is that, is that everything that is written for pastoral or practical theology has as its, um, as its ultimate goal, Christ-likeness. I mean, there is no such thing as sanctification apart from Christ-likeness. I don't, I, you know, if you've heard me say that over and over and over again. But this is the burden of the church. This is why you're in the church. You're not just in the church to be around spiritual people. You're not just in the church to be around a network of, 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 of like-minded people. You're in the church, uh, for the, the purpose of being conformed more and more to the image of Christ. So when you come to church, what you're saying is, I'm coming here because I recognize my need to change. Right? Uh, I'm coming here because who I am is not, uh, who I need to become. Right? I, I, I need to grow. I need to change. Um, and this was, this was the apostle's burden. So look at Colossians chapter one, for example. Um, when I say this is the goal, what I mean by that is, uh, all preaching, all teaching, all discipleship, all fellowship, all instruction, all theology. I mean, we just got done. Uh, if you've been here for the last couple years, you just, you know, we just got done going through systematic theology and then we just did a whole, you know, stretch of biblical theology. We've had a lot of theology, uh, so far. And what is it all for? What is it all about? Well, Colossians chapter one is going to help us with that, right? Verse, tw- beginning in verse 28, this is what Paul says. We proclaim him. Uh, what a, what a wonderful summary of what true biblical preaching is about. We proclaim him, admonishing every man, and their man obviously is representative both of male and female. That's what he means by man, the whole person. We pro- to every man, teaching every man with all wisdom, uh, so that, that's a very important purpose clause, so that 
we may present every man, here it is again, complete in Christ. That goes back to the fullness of what um, uh, of what Ephesians was talking about when it talks about the fullness of Christ, so that we may be complete in Christ. That's what it's all about. And look at verse 29. For this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. So, true pastoral ministry has to do with the pastor being, uh, in a sense, in a healthy sense, being obsessed with the growth of his people, right? And he will not be at rest until he sees Christ formed in his people. And so when we get the members and they come in and, and Pastor Chris and I, we've sat with so many in the past, the different pastors I've worked with, you know, we sat and we hear the stories and we, we gauge where you are spiritually in our minds. We're thinking of all the, all the wonderful work that needs to happen in your life. And that's a good thing. That's, that's because we all need that. We're all in the same boat as far as that goes. We all need this constant uh, teaching in all wisdom. Why? So that we would be complete in Christ. And this is why we labor. This is why we strive. Um, can't be about other things too, right? I mean, if this is the purpose why a pastor is to be laboring, I mean, it can't be, therefore, that the pastor should be laboring under a consumer-driven mentality, right? Of a marketeer-driven mentality, uh, right? I mean, that's why Paul says in First uh, Timothy chapter uh, 3 that an elder, in order to be qualified, right, he cannot have a desire for sordid gain, right? He cannot look for monetary gain. That's not why pastoral ministry exists. Uh, pastoral ministry exists for godly gain, or as Thomas Watson said, the gain of godliness, right? That's what we're looking to gain, uh, on that note, in fact, turn to First Timothy chapter 4. Um, kind of like with biblical theology and some of the themes that we've brought up in biblical theology, you're going to now hopefully start seeing uh, the foundations for practical theology everywhere in the Bible. Everywhere in the Bible. See, because God is simply not content to let you be who you are today. Right? He, 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 he's not satisfied with where you are today in your sanctification. He means to, to, to cause you to move on to maturity, right? Um, and you'll look back 10 years from today and go, boy, hopefully you'll look back and say, boy, I've grown. Boy, I was so immature back then or whatever. Um, okay, so First Timothy 4, 6 says, In pointing these things out to the brethren, you'll be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of sound doctrine which you have been following, but have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. Only the uh, uh, On the other hand, he says, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. I mean, could there be a more potent passage for practical theology than that verse right there? Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. And so my burden and the whole task of practical theology is to get you to see that as a glorious and wondrous thing to be disciplined for godliness instead instead of looking at that with in a sense of drudgery as if that is some sort of burdensome task what does uh, john tell us in first john chapter 5 right the commandments of the lord are not 
a burden. See, that's because all conformity to Christ flows out of regeneration. So going back to systematic theology, regeneration leads to um, not just definitive sanctification, but to progressive sanctification, right? As you're constantly being uh, renewed into the image of Christ more and more and more, more and more and more. Any questions, comments, statements? I don't want to be the only one to teach because you know me, I'll, I'll start preaching. So so feel free to ask a question. Yes, Jeffrey, please. What's that? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's exactly what it is. It's a labor of love. That's the same thing that Paul would say in Galatians chapter 5 or 6, where he says that the, the new covenant uh, uh, dynamic in terms of obedience to the law of God now is that faith is working through love. Right? The, 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 the ultimate Christian ethic is love, love to God. Right, And if you love God and you love people, then you have fulfilled all of the prophets and the law. So that's exactly right. And that's exactly what he's saying here, I believe. Um, just if we keep on reading here, look at the uh, wisdom of godliness. Um, it says here, for bodily discipline is only, uh, only of little profit. It is a profit. So, you know, go to the gym, take a walk, whatever you got to do. Right. Um, I used to play basketball a lot, you know, because that was a great. That was a great way for me to exercise. Till God took out my knees and now I can't run anymore. So whatever. I'll figure out other ways to try to exercise a little bit because it's a little bit, there's a little profit there. But let us not get imbalanced. Godliness far more, therefore far better, far exceeds anything that you gain out of bodily discipline. Godliness is a profitable for all things. Look at that. All things. Since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. I mean, the present life uh, consists of a need for godliness. Uh, you just go down the line in every sphere of your life, in your marriage, in your family, in your child rearing, at work, at school, in the church. Um, whatever it is, uh, godliness is of great gain. It, it holds promise. There's promises attached to growing in grace. Not just for this life, but for the life to come. Um, okay, so let's, let me move on here to something else. And that is just getting a little bit more to the goal of, of practical theology. What is the goal of practical theology? Just a little bit of an incentive on why we do this. Um, let me just say this, that the practical theology begins not with man, but with God. Therefore, there is a God-word, God-centered nature to practical theology. Um, look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. What you're doing, you're doing for God. You're not doing it for man, right? And if I can get you 
as a member of our church, as a believer, if I can get you to get this, that you that you do what you do for God, not for man, right? What does Paul say? Um, uh, I think it's to the Colossians. Do not be a, a man pleaser doing things for eye service, right? So that others see and approve of you. Oh, I tell you what, if you live your life under the eye of only one person, that is God, uh, under God's eye, okay, the Trinity, three, you know, three persons. Now, some of you are already firing off and you hear one person, God. Okay, yes, the one God, three persons in one, okay. Back to systematic theology real quick. But you know what I mean? If you, if you do what you do, um, primarily to be pleasing to God, guess what? You don't have to, you don't have to worry about anybody else. You have to worry about what your wife may think of you or what your husband may think of you or what mommy and daddy are going to think. If you live to please God, you will have man's approval. First Thessalonians chapter two, verse 13 says, for this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe so all of God's commandments are just that. They are God's commandments. This is God's word, God's law in your life. So uh, all of it is based on God's standards. Uh, that's that's what we're conforming our life to. Why is it God-centered? Because of three three reasons. It has to do with God's law, God's power, God's glory. Uh, look with me to Romans chapter 6, for example, just to see this. What, what, what you're doing, hopefully, is you're patterning your life after not what man wants you to be, but what God wants you to be. It's that simple. Uh, Romans chapter 6, verse 17. Right? This is a critical, critical passage for practical theology. It says, but thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart. That's the evidence of regeneration. To that form of teaching to which you were committed. So your, and what is that form of teaching? What is that pattern? Tupas is the word. That type of teaching or that pattern of teaching, what he's talking about is the apostolic doctrine, right? Acts, Acts chapter 2, they, they, you know, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' doctrine. So your life is to be uh, conforming to that very thing. Not just God's law, though, but also... Um, Practical theology is rooted in the power of God. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. So a lot of verses here today. Philippians chapter 2. And just to remind you where we're going here, probably probably next week, is how are we going to study practical theology? Oh, don't take that baby out of here. Oh, I was enjoying looking at that baby. <laughs> that's okay, that's right. This reminded me of the childlike faith that we need, right? <laughs> it's a living prop right there. So cute. Um, Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. This is an amazing thing. And this will get us back to systematic theology for a little bit to answer a very important question about sanctification because look at the dynamic. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation in fear and trembling. You guys know this verse. For it is God who who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And the reason why I say this kind of takes us back to systematic theology is because we have to answer the question about uh, progressive, yeah, that's progressive, 
sanctification. Is it, is it synergistic? Uh, I think it's like this, right? You know what I mean. Is it synergistic? Or is it, uh, that's not right. I'm glad so many of you know what monergism spell like. <laughs> right? It, is progressive sanctification a synergistic activity or a monergistic activity? Good, good, that's right, that's right. Um, I've had some hardcore Calvinists, you know, try to pin me to the wall on this, you know. It's monergistic, it's all of God, you've taken glory from God. No, no, absolutely not. Um, I think all of the great theologians that I've studied um, that deal with this with this issue. So what, what are we asking here? Synergism versus monergism. Synergism, so the, the preposition soon comes from the Greek soon, right? So it means with. And energy or ergos, right, means work with. So there's two people working, right? There's the believer and God at work. Whereas monergism, monos, right, one, there's only one person working and that, that theologians use monergism to explain how that it's only God who is at work. Right. So so we have to then make a decision when we encounter a passage like this. It seems to be verse 12, very uh, synergistic. Right. Work out your salvation and fear and trembling, almost as if it, it the whole weight of it all is on me. Right. To work it out. The, 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 you know, it's it's all of me. Right. But then the balancing act of that is because it is God at work in you, <laughs> both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So so this is the way it works in sanctification. God gets all the glory and you are called to put in all the effort that you have. Right. You are called in sanctification. And let me say this. Many years ago, I had this debate and it has to do with. It has to not to get not to bog us down too much in, in systematic theology, but it has to do with with our view of the uh, the the law and the gospel, the imperatives of the New Testament, and things like that. Where I've gone through controversies in the past where people uh, tend to take a, a particular view of sanctification, uh, where they basically say that in the New Testament we are not to turn the imperatives of the New Testament into some sort of secondary law. Right, that that's not what they're there for, right? Almost to turn them into a burden. Well, you know, I I have a pretty traditional view of the law and gospel. I mean, I would be right down the line, especially following Calvin, not so much Luther, because that's kind of where the the Lutheran view kind of gave birth to this. Uh, But more of a classic Reformed Calvinistic Puritan uh, tradition. Um, where and Thomas Watson and others, where I would say, no, it's not that you're creating another law. What it is, what you're looking at in the New Testament, the imperatives of the New Testament, is that these are simply explicating, expounding, and further explanation of the law of God. That's all it is. It's just fleshing out the law of God. Um, So this is what I'm afraid of. I'm afraid of looking at the imperatives in the New Testament as simply suggestions and not really commands, right? Uh, But what does Paul say? First corinthians uh, chapter 14 i think it's verse 37 where paul says uh if anybody is in question about the things that i am saying know that they are the commands of the lord so when the apostles give us an injunction it carries the weight of of god's law god's commands 
So, uh, I mean, look at this. I mean, are we, how are we to interpret this, right? Work out your salvation in fear of trembling. That's an imperative in the Greek. That is a command. That is not a suggestion. Um, you, you know what I'm saying? Any questions about that? Yes, sir. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Anybody else want to speak to that? Yes, sir. Well, I was just going to maybe even ask a question because I know that a lot of conversation occurs between us and you know a lot of us on social media, and and when some people bring up the uh, you know the the commands of scripture where it says be perfect as my Father in heaven is perfect, right? Mm-hmm. They end up sometimes people end up using the argument of good luck with that yeah how do we how do we deal with that in light of of all of this well i would say that's not how peter used it you know uh, you're talking about first peter chapter one verse i think it's 16 and 17 right where he quotes that right as be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect for be, be holy be holy right so i would say no i mean that's not how peter uses it right matter of fact right after that he says conduct your time on this earth in fear you know what I mean? So definitely he is using the holiness of God to call us to Philippians chapter uh, uh, 2, verse 13 and 12, exactly like Paul. So Peter and Paul speaking with one voice, right? We should live in fear. Um, now, 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 this is not fear of other people, fear what others may think. It's fear in, in, in the Christian sense of gospel fear. It's a fear of we fear to, to offend the Lord, we fear because our God is a consuming fire. We fear because of his holiness. We fear because if you were ever put in Isaiah's shoes and stood before the throne of God in heaven before his temple, you fall to the ground and scream, I'm ruined. Even as a justified prophet, you would still be gripped with the fear of God. So anyway. Yes, sir. Yeah, work it out, not work for it. Yeah, yes, sir. And he's already talking to believers, so it's kind of anachronistic. You know what I mean? You're putting the cart before the horse type of thing. It's uh, yeah, they're already saved, so he can't possibly be saying get saved. Or maybe they could argue for stay saved. You know what I mean? But that's not what he's talking about. Uh, anybody else? Anybody else? Yeah. That's right. It keeps you balanced, you know. Uh, and thank God for that, you know, that it's about. I mean, think about the, the opposite. If we just say, well, it's all God, nothing to do with the Remember, what are we talking about? Progressive sanctification. Progressive versus what? Definitive. Now, is definitive monergistic or synergistic? It is monergistic. What is definitive sanctification? Russell, since you brought it up, brother. <laughs> Right. Right. Yeah. And so, uh, w- yeah. And 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 definitive. W- what they're what theologians are really trying to emphasize is 
you know, in the, in the Bible, it uses the word uh, for sanctification in the past tense. You have been sanctified, right? So what's that talking about? Because we're still sinful, right? So what he's talking about is that there has been a definitive break with sin in your life. The dominion of sin over you has has been broken. And so now the progressive aspect of sanctification is the attempt to lay aside indwelling sin. And that is something, uh, as Calvin said, will be a lifelong agonizing process. Because as J.I. Packer recently said, now nearing the end of his life, he said that the longer I live with God, the longer I walk with God, the longer I grow in my understanding of God's holiness, the more sinful I feel. <laughs> the more sinful I appear. The more I learn of just how holy God is, the more it is apparent how wicked I am and how, you know, how, how, how ruined I am without him type of thing. Yes, yes, ma'am. Right. Yeah. Yeah. What 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 we're saying is here is that right? It's 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 a God centered uh, enterprise, uh, practical theology. Why? Because it's based on God's law, it's his standards, as we, as we read. It's also based on the efficacy of God. It's his power. So every gain you will ever make in sanctification, you owe all the glory to God. Right? Um, that's what it means. Questions? A couple other questions? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Mm, very good. I remember whenever I was in high school, right? I'd be like, man, I want to read my Bible, man. I'd be praying about it. And I realized at that point that it wasn't just something I was just going to like all of a sudden read the Bible. No, I'm going to read this chapter, right? There's an aspect of, okay, the Lord can give me those desires and I need to follow through mm. to, to do those things that He's called me. Amen, brother. Yeah, yeah. That's right. That's right. We know that, right? Um, we know that God ordains the end as well as the means to the end, right? And the, the ordained means to the end of our sanctification is that we work out our, our salvation in fear and trembling, right? There's effort. There's real effort. There's bodily discipline. What does Paul say? I buffet my body, right? Um, uh, I, I just remember, I just remember not too long ago, a brother, uh, that was in a, one of our men's studies. He heard one of the brothers talking about, well, he's going to be giving up a certain liberty that he has because he just doesn't, it's not helping him in his growth. And, uh, and, and this person wrote to me in a lengthy email saying he's afraid that people are, you know, why can't they just be mature enough to know how to, you know, I hate to see people, he said, give everything up because they think that that's what's going to cause them to grow. And my response to that was very simple. It was self-denial is very rare today. I will not discourage it. And, I mean, what did Jesus say? If you don't pick up your cross and deny yourself, you cannot be my disciple. I mean, you think the Apostle Paul had rights? Of course he had rights. He laid so many rights down for the sake of ministry and for the sake of the kingdom and ultimately for the sake of the glory of God. Um, 
and 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 here's where we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves but but here's where we have to walk that fine line of either you know antinomianism on one side and 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 legalism on the other side right um where we start in a sense casting our convictions on other people as if they're law right where we can't do that but at the same time we also don't want to become antinomian in the sense of lawless no regard to God's law right um, that's, that's because of the grace of God, you know, saved by grace. You know, it's all, it's all, it's all there. It's all, it's all in the Bible. <laughs> it's all there, right? Book of Romans. I mean, shall we sin because so that grace may abound? Shall it never be? How shall we sin who died to sin? Right? How should we live in it if we've died to sin? Of course not. We would never look at life that way. By the way, if you do look at life that way, Paul's argument in Romans goes on to conclude you are, you are still in bondage, right? You've lied to yourself about what grace is really all about. You're really still uh, in bondage. Um, okay, so uh, further proof, or shall we go on? A third, let's go on to the, to the next thing. Is that I said it's all God's law, God's power, and all for God's glory. And of course, here, look at this verse, 1 Corinthians, well, let me, I just read it to you, 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Whether, whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. I think, sadly, this this passage has become almost like a cliche in, in a, a Christian slogan, but we don't really allow the potency uh, and the all-encompassing and exhaustive nature of what Paul is saying there. What he is saying there is that every aspect of our life is literally doxological, right? Doxa, glory. It is, it is worship. Every aspect of our life is worship. Tell you what, you want to get serious about holiness, start viewing every aspect of your life as worship and then ask God, is this acceptable worship to the Lord, right? Is this acceptable within the parameters of can I do this for the glory of God, right? And then Paul says, whatever is not of faith, if you can't do it in faith, whatever is not of faith is sin, right? And um, what I say is that's God being very gracious to us. Right. And and it just shows us like the Bible tells us in uh, Ephesians or no, what is it? Galatians chapter five. Right. As far as walking and uh, bearing the fruit of the spirit and having the fruit of the spirit. So many of those who live by the spirit are led by the spirit of God. We are led by God's spirit and graciously God sanctifies us. And so um, what else? Anything on that? Any questions on that? Romans 1136. Romans 11, yeah. Um, what does it say? I think I, I have an idea, but oh, the depth of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, right? But then he ends with, to him be the glory forever. For of him and through him and all things, yeah. Yeah. Amen. That's right. Everything is from that. That, that really is the heartache of the regenerate believer is, is wanting to give glory to God for everything, right? Um, it's almost like, we we really feel um, and we experience uh, something of the of the of the grace and of the love of God when He gets all the glory. Not to quote John Piper, but we are most satisfied in Him when He is most glorified in us, and He is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. That is a true statement. I don't know, as he said, that we should amend the Westminster Confession, but it's a true statement. 
Um, yeah, that's right. Um, let me see here. I've got so much here. <sighs> what about Second Corinthians chapter 5? Bearing in mind that for the believer, just uh, as we're talking about the fact that everything counts, every sphere of our lives, everything that we do can and should be done for the glory of God. Uh, and this really comes home to us once we realize Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9, right, that we will be judged for the things that we do. I mean, have you forgotten that? We talk a lot about people getting judged by God, but don't forget, we will be judged by God as well, right? Look at verse 9. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. That's practical theology right there. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what has been done, whether good or bad. Oh, that's amazing. That's amazing. So think about that. And what, what are we saying? What, what is Paul saying? What is he not saying here? What is he not saying, Robert? That you're going to be judged and end up in hell. Right. This is not a judgment that decides your condemnation, right? Um, and, and, or your salvation. Um, uh, I, I think it was one of those liberating truths, and I don't remember what theologian said this, but they said that when you die and you face God on judgment, that is not going to decide whether or not you go to heaven or hell. I thought, wow. Because I think sometimes we can slip subconsciously, we can almost slip into that, right? Thinking that our salvation, our ultimate salvation, is yet to be determined somehow, right? No, no. It has been determined. It has been decided. Where? At the cross. When? The moment you believed, right? But this is still saying that even then, we still must give an account for our lives, and I think this kind of correlates with what he said in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 3, when he goes on there to talk about how you build versus, I think it's like verses 13 and 19, uh, um, I think it's verse 13 and 18, where he talks about the fact that you um, will either, you know, this is talking about Christian ministry, but there is a universal application where it depends what you build with. You know, if you build, if you have a weak foundation, if you've built with shoddy building material, right? It says each one's work will be revealed. So that's kind of, you know, the same. Might as well turn there. Sorry. Sorry. Right? Oh, why? You guys remembered. First Corinthians chapter 3, beginning in verse, uh, I guess verse 11. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one that has been laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw, each man's work will become evident, right? For the day will show it, because it it is to be revealed with fire. I think that's the the fire the the, the fire of God's judgment, his the, the, the his trying fire, the testing fire. That's right. And the fire itself will test quality of each man's work if any man's work which he has built on it remains he will receive a reward if any man's work is burnt up he will suffer loss but he himself will be saved so yes you will be saved but the quality of your work in the gospel can be burnt up that that should that should be part of the fear of the lord here right that we do what we do with right motive 
that we do what we do with right doctrine, that we do what we do, um, you know what I'm saying, in, in, in a way that's pleasing to God. Um, all of those things. Okay. Man, just tempted to either go here or not go here. Let's, <laughs> yeah. So let's go quickly and, and talk about um, let's talk about the book of Ephesians again, uh, just because, yeah, so this goes from the nature of practical theology to what I want to call the method. We dealt a little bit with the scope of it and what it all contains. Um, but really the method, just to kind of end, I guess, reminding us where we're going, what we're going to be doing, uh, and how we're going to do this. Really, if you think about it, there's two ways to do practical theology. Uh, some practical theology textbooks uh, that you find, they'll usually, what they'll do is they'll just take a bunch of topics. So they'll hit, you know, marriage, family, child rearing, finances, you know, biblical manhood, womanhood, things like that, and they just kind of go one by one. So what I want to do is a bit more organic, if you would. I guess it's the biblical, the influence of biblical theology. But it's to say, we're just going to take the book of Ephesians as our textbook. So we're not going to use Jay Adams, we're not going to use Ken Sandy, or somebody like that, even though I maybe I'll quote for them or use them. I have taught Ken Sandy's book, Peacemakers, uh, in the past. And it, it was a good book. I, I think this is, I hope he's not listening. I think this is better because we're just going to go through the word, right? And, and, and the reason why is because I think it's so important to, as, as, as believers, as we're seeking to grow, to be able to, to inject ourselves into the flow of thought of scripture, Right? Whether we remember someone's program or not, it may be very good, very wise, maybe a good counseling system, it might be a good counseling book, might be a good book on marriage, right? But I think the most important thing of all is that you remember what does the word say and how does it say it? And how did I get there, right? Um, I, just, I, I think we're meant to do this. Uh, because we're meant to really take upon ourselves a, a, a certain theology, even with practical theology. Um, okay, I'll do this just because I think, just to show you, like look at uh, Ephesians chapter 4, going back to Ephesians chapter 4 again. I uh, wanted to show you guys um, just how biblical theology plays out, even in practical theology. This is why it's so important to have the right foundation of a biblical theology and I was sharing this with Robert and my wife uh, the other night, but just uh, just to show you what is sanctification all about. Well, uh, you know this passage, but just to remind you, verse 23. Oh, boy. Might not be able to go that far in. Verse 20. But you did not learn Christ in this way, if indeed you have learned you have heard him and have been taught by him. Uh, by the way, hearing him and being taught by him, what does that mean? What's that referring to? What's that? Uh, through the apostles, right? Maybe, he, but it says, who, who have they heard and who have they been taught by? Right? You have heard him. Who is him? Right. Right. And have been taught in him. Right? So that is talking about regeneration. That's all I'm going to say because uh, hearing and being taught by him uh, that's language that is used um, in conjunction with the New Covenant to speak about regeneration. But anyway, we'll keep going. It says, Just as the truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, 
you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and you be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Watch this now. And you put on the new self, uh, which is in the likeness of God, has been created in righteousness and holiness and truth. Now, biblical theologians in here, what does it mean, the likeness of God, and what does the word created go back to? Genesis. Genesis what? Genesis 321. You're getting ahead of me right now, but Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27, which is where God says what? Let us make man in our image, right? This is a parallel passage to Colossians chapter 3, verse 10, where the image, the icon is used, right? As the image of God is used there, uh, explicitly again, in connection to the Creator. So, what is Paul doing? He is connecting our sanctification back to Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. Why? To show us that what is happening in our sanctification is that we are being renewed back to the image that Adam and Eve should have uh, secured through righteousness, right? But failed to do that because we know what the fall is, and they didn't. So, In Genesis chapter 3, verse 21, as Robert says, this is an amazing text that I want you to, just to see how biblical theology works, for example, says, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, watch this, and he clothed them. He clothed them. Now, how many of you have heard sermons where the pastor says, this idea of put off and put on, the Greek language is referring to the taking off of a garment and the putting on of a garment, right? And that's true. That is what the that is what the Greek word is talking about. Do you know that in the Old Testament, Septuagint, the translation from Hebrew into Greek in the Old Testament, do you know what Greek word is used in Genesis three twenty one for God clothing Adam and Eve with skins? This word right here in Ephesians chapter four, the word put on. He put on them, or he clothed them. With skins, and what was that skin representing that he clothed them with? What was the skin in Genesis representing that he clothed them with? It was representing typologically the sacrifice of Christ. The reason we know that is not by going from Genesis to the New Testament. It's by going from Genesis to the Levitical law. And so that the Levites, the Israelites, they saw the language of sacrifice in Genesis chapter 3 verse 21. But we know that the language of sacrifice is ultimately pointing forward to the ultimate sacrifice. So what is God clothing Adam and Eve with? He is clothing them in the image of the one who would make atonement for their sin. And so in the same way, when we are putting on the new self, God is restoring us back to that original image amen Amen. some of you are like well maybe (laughs) that's okay study it out um yeah let's pray father lord time is just always fleeting and as a preacher once said alas the hourglass she is the enemy just seems as if there's just never enough time to talk about the the wonder of your word And so, Father, continue to bless our worship now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.